0: footnotes join us as we explore public local and world history through discussions with professors authors fellow students and alumni thank you for joining us I'm your host Emily and today I'm very excited to introduce my new co-host Christian Graham
1: hi everyone it's really nice to be a part of beyond footnotes Um, I'm excited to be a part of this year's new team From the dawn of civilization to empires that ruled over the world, the ancient world is filled with heroes and villains, tragedy and comedy, peace and violence, creation and destruction. This was a time of development and advancement of the human civilization with inventions such as farming, irrigation, writing, religions, cities, armies, etc., Humanity advanced from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a more sedentary and urban lifestyle with the invention of irrigation and the mass production of food, allowing people to stay in one place, leading to the building of cities, monuments, societies, and later, empires. Much of the ancient world is still shrouded in mystery, making the task of piecing together the ancient story all the more important. Today, we are going to interview Professor George Armantrout, a professor of ancient history at Portland State University and the vice president of the Oregon Daffodil Society. He received his Ph.D. in classical archaeology from the University of Michigan in 1990. He has traveled around the Mediterranean and has participated in several archaeological digs from Tunisia to Corinth. While well, he teaches many different subjects in ancient history, he is a specialist in ancient Mediterranean history, as well as ancient Greek and Roman art. Welcome, Professor Trout, and thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: Let's start with your background. Where are you from? How did you get involved in ancient history, archaeology, and art? And what brought you to PSU?
2: Well, I'm actually an Oregonian, at least I claim to be. I was... Uh, brought here at the ripe old age of two. I did my undergraduate work at Oregon State University uh, and just decided, I don't know why I decided, but something told me I wanted to study the ancient Greek and Roman world, uh, something that when I was at Oregon State wasn't possible to do. They simply didn't have a program that covered that material. But it interested me, so I went on. I went to the University of Oregon for a year and took some language and some history and some art history, and then uh, off to graduate school. Uh, What brought me to PSU? Well, actually, I moved to Portland because I couldn't find a job in academia, but I had a friend at Portland State that, after several years of living in the area, uh, offered me a a job teaching one class for her. Uh, I took it up and uh, over the years it grew into a full-time job. So uh, I'm sort of a PSU professor by accident.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's very interesting. So why are you attracted specifically to ancient
2: Greece? Uh, Well, the ancient Greeks are the people that invented Greek pottery, if nothing else. Uh, if you start reading the works by the ancient Greeks, it's almost impossible not to be interested in them. Uh, Homer is fascinating. Aeschylus is brilliant. Euripides wrote real pot boilers of, of <laughs> melodramas. Uh, and the comedies of Aristophanes will still make you laugh. Uh, You read a man like Thucydides and I come away reading Thucydides thinking, oh my God, this guy is so much smarter than I am. (laughs) So uh, how can you not love that?
0: Um, Is there a particular period or culture in ancient Greek history that you're more interested in?
2: Uh, Not really. I started out more in uh, the period from about Six hundred to to three hundred, the the, the archaic and classical periods, as as the name is given to them, uh, but as time has gone on and my own my own work and reading has progressed, I, in I've also come to be very very interested in the period between the collapse of the Bronze Age and twelve hundred, and the. Uh, rise of literacy around 750 so so the period sometimes called the dark age uh, and those who hate the term dark age like to call it the early iron age Um, uh, so no I don't really have a period that doesn't interest me (laughs)
1: Um, Professor, you and I have talked about how you were beginning to conduct research on the origins of hoplite warfare in ancient Greece. Could you define what a hoplite was and when hoplite warfare emerged?
2: Um, A hoplite is, simply put, a warrior that carries a large round shield called a hoplon. Uh, But it's a little bit more than that because the Greeks would form a formation of these round shields, basically something like a shield wall, uh, and use a a group tactics. Uh, Everybody in the line had to have full armor. They had to have a breastplate. They had to have a helmet. They had to have a spear. They had to have the large shield. Uh, Swords were backup weapons only. The main weapon was a thrusting spear. Um, uh, they ideally would have leg armor. Uh, So a hoplite is basically a way of arming a soldier, but it really relates to a formation called the hoplite phalanx.
0: So hoplites are popularly known for the military formation, the phalanx. Could you explain what the phalanx was and why this particularly Particular military formation is so famous.
2: Um, well, the phalanx is is, as I said before, the soldiers marching in line. In fact, we have at least one vase painting showing how they kept kept in line. They would they would have a musician giving the soldiers a beat to march to, uh, and in the term in the case of the ancient Greeks. This was a double flute, uh, basically it's a reed instrument. I don't know That is it's really a flute, uh, but uh, so they would, they would march in line. Uh, the, the person would carry the shield on their left arm, the spear in their right hand. And because it was a large round shield, the left side of the round shield would actually partial the pers- partially cover the person on your left. Okay, uh, so as I said, that's, a, that's something of a shield wall. But almost as important, um, there was not just a single line of soldiers. The hoplite phalanx would have as many as 6 to 12 soldiers deep. So it'd be, it would be a series of these lines marching across the field. Actually, uh, if they were going into battle, they... they uh, they did it double time, and they would they would scream their war pay on as they approached. Um, they were pretty frightening. <laughs> uh, uh, at one point in time, one military uh, innovator thought, you know, if 12 is good, what about 50? Uh, which he used to good effect, by the way. He uh, managed to polish off the Spartan power in a single battle using this tactic. So um, they're so famous because during the time the phalanx was prominent, it basically defeated everybody it came up against. The The Persians came up against the, the Greeks, uh, outnumbering them as much as 10 to 1. Uh, the phalanx, generally speaking, there are a couple of embarrassments for the Greeks but generally speaking the phalanx always came out on top. So um, it's famous because it worked uh, until they ran into the Romans but let's, <laughs> let's, let's save that embarrassment.
1: Were there any requirements for being a hoplite? For example wealth or property requirements?
2: Uh, there were no actual wealth or property requirements we know of. Um, Basically, the requirement for being a hoplite was quite simple. You had to be able to afford the weapons. So you had to provide your own helmet, your own breastplate, your own leg armor, your own shield. Um, These weapons, particularly the helmet and the shield, often included at least some metal. Uh, By the way, the uh, bronze was the metal of choice because it was so much easier to work than iron. Uh, and if all you're doing is turning a spear thrust, it works just as well as iron. Um, And so if you have weapons made up largely of bronze, they're really quite expensive. So certainly well under half the population in Greece would have had enough wealth to afford the weapons that, that they used in this form of warfare.
0: Were Hoplites the main body in a Greek army, or was there another type of unit that made up most of the force?
2: Uh, I can't can't really answer that. I can tell you that hoplites were the most important body. Uh, But there was another group called the Peltasts. These were people who couldn't afford the hoplite armor uh, and they would—they were slingers. They were javelin throwers. These are these are people who would use distance weapons as opposed to the thrusting spear. You you have you have to be no further away than the length of your thrusting thrusting spear for that one to work. Um, so we do have the Peltas. They seem to have been quite important, although they become more important later on. Uh, We also know that the Greeks uh, had cavalry in their battles, and cavalry is probably the single best way to foil the hoplite phalanx, because you can simply ride around to the back of it if you have horses. Uh, But fortunately for the Greeks, they live in rocky mountainous country, and cavalry forces were always pretty minimal. So the hoplite phalanx was able to work without too much fear from cavalry. On the topic
1: of war, the two most famous conflicts in ancient Greece were the Peloponnesian War and the Greco-Persian Wars. The Peloponnesian War was an internal conflict between the city-states of Athens and Sparta, and the Greco-Persian Wars were a series of conflicts between the Greek city-states of between the city-states of Greece and Persia. How prevalent was war in ancient Greece?
2: Um, Greece. Well, the culture we think of as classical Greece grew out of really a warrior society. So um, there was a great deal of, of status associated with warfare and being successful in warfare. Um, so war was really endemic in ancient Greece. There were, uh, well... I had a professor once a long, long, long time ago who described Greece as any city-state, any polis next to you is probably your enemy. And because the polis on the other side of them is their enemy, they're your friend. Um, The 5th century almost never stopped fighting in Greece. The 4th century got worse. As far as we know, warfare was endemic in the 7th and the 6th centuries as well, though the records for those aren't so good. But, yeah, the Greeks, when, when the Persians left Greece, um, they seem to have taken the approach of, you know what? These Greeks like to kill each other. Let's just give them some money so they can do it.
1: <laughs> so when it comes to Greek warfare, many people instantly think of Sparta. I myself find the Lacedaemonians extremely fascinating. Do you think the legends and myths paint a false picture of their society, or are they an accurate depiction
2: of Spartan life? Um, I think all legends present a somewhat false picture. People who study ancient Greece refer to the problem of dealing with Sparta as the Spartan mirage. Uh, We simply can't trust our sources. Um, Plutarch is one of our most important sources, and it's, it's almost as though he is writing a book of hero worship of the ancient Spartans. When we read Herodotus... The Spartans seem to be just a little bit more human than what we see in Plutarch. And then when we read Aristotle, the Spartans are just downright evil. So <laughs> uh, so the, the answer, if there is an answer, is uh, the Spartans are probably very human, just like anybody else. But when you grow up in a culture that begins your military training at age seven, and and if ever you go wrong in your military training, you are excluded from the politics uh, and society of the leaders of the state, Uh, yeah, they were probably pretty militaristic. So in class, you often try to help students
1: understand how long ago these events took place. Why do you think it is important
2: to understand this massive gap in time? Well, it doesn't. Sometimes it's not even a massive gas, gap of time, but I can give you an example. Uh, when, I, when I read people who, who talk about um, there was an eruption on the island of Santorini, uh, probably 1630 ish BCE. Uh, and then there's a collapse within 50 or 60 years of Minoan civilization. There was probably a tidal wave that went with the eruption. Therefore, the eruption must have caused the collapse. And I just want people to imagine uh, what you're actually saying. This would, this would be like saying um, the Great Recession that started in 2008 was a direct result of the peace treaties that ended World War II. Um, You really have to think two generations of people, even though when you're looking back, it's all compressed as events that happen one after the other. It's really two generations of people. When we look at cave painting in Europe, the earliest cave paintings are 32,000 BCE. So, the amount of time between the cave paintings of Europe and the Neolithic Revolution. um, Let's do some math here. Uh, That's 22,000 years, so that's 11 times longer than the time between the Emperor Augustus and Donald Trump.
0: You have a fascination with art and more specifically pottery. What do you think historians can learn from studying the art of past civilizations?
2: It depends a lot on the civilization. Um, In Egypt, for example, um, you can actually look at objects from different archaeological contexts and get a sense of what people did, find out how people believed. how people believe if you're a peasant in a village is almost certainly going to be quite different from how people believe if you happen to be a king in a palace. Um, So even even in the simplest terms, we can get an idea about beliefs, about lifestyle, about food. Um, In Greece, we have Greek pottery. I've mentioned it already. And the thing about Greek pottery is that actually shows people going about their day-to-day lives. Uh, We have images of women airing clothing. Uh, We have images of children playing with their toys. Uh, If nothing else, it truly humanizes the past. Uh, We tend to think in terms of statistics and large movements when in fact these are just people who are acting in their world.
1: So pottery was important in Greek
2: societies? Pottery was important in all pre-industrial societies, post-Neolithic Revolution. Um, If metals are very, very expensive and you need to boil water, baskets can sort of do it, but they don't really do it so well. Hot rocks in a basket is a bit slow but you can actually take a pot and stick it on a fire. Um, pots are wonderful for carrying liquids. They're wonderful for transporting materials. They're much less expensive to make than textiles, so that a number of solids would actually probably have been transported in pottery, uh, like grain, rather than in, in, in bags, depending on whether you're loading it on a donkey or putting it in a boat. Um, so pottery is really, really important in of itself. Uh, the pottery I look at is mostly decorated pottery. And that's a fairly small group of material. Um, so, yeah, the pottery I look at, I, by the way, I love the other pottery. Uh, I, I'll confess, I actually like to make pottery myself. I began making pottery when I was 20 years old, and I haven't managed to uh, get myself away from it yet. I even have a studio in my garage, so there are a terrible truth about a professor. (laughs) He has a hobby. It's not daffodils.
1: (laughs) So you and I have discussed our travels across the Mediterranean several times, but you've also gone on several archaeological digs in the area. You've been to Carthage in Tunisia, Corinth in Greece, Opido Mamertina in Italy, and Telanapha in Israel. What kind of items did you find or were you looking for? Oh, dear.
2: Um, well, a word about archaeology that, that most people who don't study archaeology don't actually understand. So, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. Archaeologists aren't really looking for stuff. Now, if I'm talking about an expedition sent out by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the 1920s, yes, they were looking for stuff. uh, Stuff they could put in their museum. But archaeologists today are looking for information. Um, So, when I was working in Tunisia, Uh, We were digging an early Christian cemetery and we were carefully examining the bones. We want to know how old people were when they died. We wanted to know what kind of health issues they had. We wanted to know about their stature. Um, We looked at grave goods, but grave goods are, for the most part, more interesting in what they tell you about the person than than any real value. the vast majority of material that you would find in such an excavation will end up in a drawer in the basement of a museum somewhere, only to be seen by a researcher in the distant, distant future. So, um, in terms of what I have found, uh, I you know, uh, some cool stuff. I found a, a, a an engraved gem once. That was pretty cool. Um, found an inscription in Greece Uh, It wasn't a very interesting inscription it was just somebody's epitaph but it was still kind of fun finding one Uh, and what you really find and this is going to surprise everybody I suppose uh, but here it goes, what you really find is a lot of dirt with a little (laughs) bit of stuff in it Do you plan on going on any more digs? now uh squatting in a trench in the hot sun for 8 hours a day <laughs> is a little bit beyond my uh my soon to retire body's abilities.
1: <laughs> in which of these countries if any were your favorite?
2: Um can I refuse to answer that I will just <laughs> tell you that that I liked them all each for different reasons. Um Tunisia was just spectacular. Um, if for no other reason, you could actually walk through Roman ruins in Tunisia that were in spectacularly good condition. Uh, the basements of houses completely intact. Um, the desert was wonderful. The, the Mediterranean shore was wonderful. And I have nothing but kind things to say about the Tunisian people. Uh, Greece, well, Greece is Greece. Uh, it, is, it is a beautiful, rugged country with small villages. Uh, it is, Athens is an enormous city with an almost unlimited number of things to do. Uh, Italy, someday when I have a large enough stomach and enough money, I want to eat my way through Italy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I like them all. I, I, I find the people to be wonderful. The food is spectacular. The scenery is lovely. Uh, um, I'm not going to choose one.
0: <laughs> so you could go to any bookstore and in the ancient history section pick up, I don't know, probably nine out of ten books that would have a picture of Greek pottery on the front of them. Um why is Greek pottery so iconic or symbolic of the ancient world? Um,
2: well, I think Greek pottery is is so iconic uh, is because it humanizes the Greeks. Uh, Greek pottery is an unusual pottery style in that it chose, to, they, the Greeks chose to decorate their wares, and by the way, just a small percentage of pottery is the fineware that you see the pictures on. Uh, the Greeks chose to decorate their fineware with naturalistic images of people. Uh, and so we can pick up a Greek pot and see what a Greek warrior looked like. We can pick up a Greek pot and see what a Greek drinking party looked like. We can pick up a Greek <laughs> pot and and see what children's toys looked like. Um, There's a marvelous pot where a a, a little boy is is pulling his pull toy with little wheels on it that make it move, and he's just pulling it along. Of course, it's a sad pot because he is loading himself into Charon's Ferry to go into the underworld as his mother waves (laughs) goodbye. It came from his grave, almost certainly. Uh, But... uh, it, it's so human. Uh, the other thing about Greek, for example, in, as book covers, if you have a book cover of, of Greek artists, if you're writing a book about Greek artists, and you have a painting done in a period you're studying of Greek artists working, why wouldn't you put it on the cover of your book? It's a very
1: good question. <laughs> Um, it is easy to see the influence of Greek art and architecture outside of Greece in the modern and ancient world. How was Greek architecture perceived around the Mediterranean during ancient times? I guess a better way to ask it would be, were the several Greek colonies successful in spreading their culture and architecture to the surrounding areas? Um,
2: yes and no. The thing to keep in mind about Greek architecture, uh, the basic principles that we think of when we think of Greek architecture is is columns holding up buildings. I mean, uh, I challenge anybody to think of an image of Greek architecture that does not involve columns holding up the roof of a building. Okay. The Greeks put columns on their buildings for exactly the same reason that the federal style in America put columns on their buildings. You can build buildings without columns around the outside, but how do you know it's an important building then? (laughs) Okay. Um, So, people had columns in their buildings. The Egyptians, because they just, you know, they they put their columns on the inside. The Greeks put theirs on the outside. Uh, But the greeks develop a very very rigid system they had they had basically two orders the I- ionic and the doric and then a the third when the corinthian came along um, which is basically ionic with a couple of twists uh, the romans for their part uh, were building buildings out of mud brick with wooden columns and terracotta roofs uh, then They conquered the Greek city of Syracuse and suddenly we start seeing a lot more Greek architecture. Um, The fact is that Greek architecture replaced uh, a fairly simple system of architecture the Romans had. uh, Because it was more elaborate, it was stone rather than wood and unfired mud brick. Uh, so the Romans adopted this, and then they went around conquering the entire Mediterranean, and everybody's building them because they're all Romans. <laughs> That's overly simplified, but, <laughs> but one must in a short period of time. Yeah.
1: So switching back to the topic of travel, do you think it is important for students to travel abroad? And if so, why? Um,
2: I think it is very important that uh, students travel um In the world of art history, I, I was an art historian and English major as an undergraduate because I didn't have classical archaeology. And one of the things I learned was, I can look at pictures of paintings. I can look at pictures of buildings. But until I see the building and walk through the building, I don't know what it's about. You can say the same thing about cultures that are not American cultures. I can read books about the culture. I can look at photographs of the people who live in the culture. But if I want to understand the culture, I have to go there and walk through the place and meet the people. Otherwise, I am just studying the shadow of the culture. If you want to be a fully rounded, well-educated person, understanding the world is an essential part of that. And seeing the world is the only way you can truly come to understand it.
0: If students are unable to travel outside of the United States, where could they go in the United States to see ancient artifacts in person? there are specific museums you would recommend?
2: There are spectacular museums. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, let me just start with Oregon. All right, um, there is a tiny collection of Greek pots and some Roman artifacts. Uh, a couple of really, really nice Roman uh, statues which are very, very odd regional style, um, but nevertheless very, very high quality at the Portland Art Museum. So, so you can actually get a, a, a mini fix right here in town. In Salem, there's a little museum called um, the Halle Ford Museum on the Willamette University campus. They have a few small Egyptian artifacts, but they also have a, a little Roman mosaic it's in a room not much larger than a than, uh, well probably smaller than Bill Gates' bathroom, but not much larger <laughs> than 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 a normal person's bathroom. Um, so it's not a huge collection, but at least you can see them. Uh, San Francisco, the Legion of Honor, has a very good selection of vases. Uh, but if you can make it down to Los Angeles, the Getty Museum in Malibu is is ground zero on the West Coast. Seattle has some good stuff, too. Um, so, uh, But the biggest collections, uh, if you're interested in the Middle East, uh, the place to go is in the Midwest is the University of Chicago. Uh, they have the Oriental Institute. There's a museum there that has, uh, well, they, they actually have one of the uh, uh, Akhenaten, uh, the heretic king of Egypt, they have one of his colossi uh, in the museum. Um, they actually, I think, they had to take the back wall out of the museum to move a Lamassu, a, a big bull-man creature from from Assyria. Into so so, University of Chicago has a really good museum there. Uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Has one of the best archaeological museums for the Near East in Egypt. The Brooklyn Museum has an ama- amazing Egyptian collection. Uh, the Boston Museum of Fine Art has an amazing collection. Um, the Metropolitan has, without doubt, the best collection of Greek vase paintings in America. So there, there's plenty to do. Uh, I'm sorry to say the Smithsonian isn't very good at all for the ancient world. Uh, It it does everything else so well. It's sort of a pity. Yeah. When studying the
1: ancient world, it is impossible not to recognize how amazing the names are. What are your favorite names from ancient Greece, Rome, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Persia? You have to name one from each. It can be a city, building, person. Oh, Lord. (laughs) You're being unfair here. You come up with so many in class.
2: Uh, Well, that's because yeah. All right. Well, obviously the very, very, the very, very most shocking name uh, in in Rome. uh, It's not shocking in Latin at all, but it sounds funny in English. Is is the Emperor Pupienus? Um, uh, Let's see. For Greece. Uh, Greece doesn't do really fun names very well at all, I must confess. Uh, uh, I mean, places like Sphacteria. I suppose Sphacteria is nice enough because it, you can't tell if it's a disease, an island, or a drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, so well, we'll just use Sphacteria. It's also a battle, by the way. Um, so I have to do Egypt and the Near East. Yep, Mesopotamia, and Persia. Uh, oh, well... Egypt. Uh yeah, I I gotta go with Pepe the Second. Yeah. Pepe the second. Uh it, it's cute, it's perky, and he <laughs> lived to be a hundred years old when he wasn't. So Pepe. Alright. Um Persia. Oh God, Darius Xerxes, Artaxerxes, Xerxes. Dull. <laughs> uh uh, let's see. Uh, Persia's got me stumped. I don't find I don't. They just don't do it for me. Well, um, uh, yeah, we could go with Bagoas. That's a nice name. <laughs> uh, he was a he was a palace eunuch uh, for. For uh, Mesopotamia well Mesopotamia is, is, is sort of ground zero for fabulous names uh, uh, Sargon uh, the, the all time greatest dog name particularly large and somewhat intimidating dogs <laughs> uh, Lugal Zagazi is a spectacular name and uh, if we go a little bit later and go a little north to Assyria, of course it has to be Tiglath Pileser III. Um, and when we go to Anatolia, without doubt, the best of them all, Supiuliuma, which just rolls off the tongue.
0: <laughs> Do you have any advice for people who are majoring in history or want to major in history?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Boy, I thought about, I actually, I was thinking about that. And um, um, What I, I guess the best advice I could give is broaden out. Don't decide I like medieval and just do medieval. You might actually discover that you also love uh, the French Revolution or the American Revolution or ancient Rome. Um Broaden out, and I would just say that of all, of all students in all majors, do a broader range of things. Find out what you really like. Don't just come in with tunnel vision. Um, the other thing I would tell you is that history is one of the best majors for learning the basic skills that you need to survive in the real world. Where else do you get people who are mean to you about your writing so (laughs) thoroughly as history professors? But in fact, what separates a university graduate from a high school graduate? I've worked in jobs where high school graduates have to write procedures. That's nothing, but can you write clear, clean prose? Can you reduce your prose to a simple argument that will fit into a memo? Um, These are things that I think you should be learning at university. And can you read a document, take the facts in the document, and try and reconstruct the other side of what the document is arguing? That That is a brilliant, brilliant thing that you can learn studying history it helps you understand the world around you in a way that some other approaches simply don't. Um, If I were uh, somebody hiring and I had a choice between somebody with a bachelor's in business administration and a person with a history degree with, uh, with really good grades in both instances, I would probably go with a history degree because I know I could train him in the basics of business administration, but I don't know I could train the business major and the basics of critical thinking.
0: That made me feel a little bit better about my choice <laughs> <my> of <choice laughs> yeah. majors. So we have time for one last question before we go. And as a historian, personally, it's one of my favorite questions to ask people. If you could travel back in time to any event or time period in history, when and where would you go?
2: Uh, Well, one of you has taken my classes and I I actually bring this up from time to time in class. Um, I'm sorry to say that the answer is whatever I'm thinking about at the moment. So, uh, What did the Hanging Gardens of Babylon look like? (laughs) What did the Great Pyramid at Giza look like when it was all shiny, sparkly, white, and smooth on the sides? Uh, What did the Parthenon look like when it was brightly painted in blues, yellows, greens, and reds? Uh, Yeah, those are all archaeologists' answers, but there you have it. (laughs)
1: Professor, I wanted to say thank you for coming on Beyond Footnotes and sharing this information with us. It's been a real pleasure interviewing you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I would like to encourage our viewers to read more about the ancient world. It is a very interesting era in history, and it can sometimes be very shocking to some people that the ancient world and the modern era have many similarities. I would also like to encourage history majors to go to their professor's office hours. There's so much you can learn from your professors outside of the class environment, and they are an amazing source of information if you are more curious about the information not touched on in class. Even to those of you who are not history majors, try and take a history class if you have the time. There's so much we can learn from studying our past.
0: Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at KPSU.